What's up? This is Elliot Einhorn. Welcome to the TalkHouse podcast. Today, I'm joined by... Nick Dawson, editor-in-chief of TalkHouse Film. We have a very cool episode today featuring the creators of two of the most revolutionary and important television series out there. Absolutely. This is a really special one. Talking today, we have Mark Frost, co-creator, of course, with David Lynch of Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks. Peaks. And Twin Peaks The Return, which is the TV event of this year. And then Sam Esmail, the guy behind... Mr. Mr. Robot. Robot. (laughs) Nailed it. I I really loved listening to these two guys talk. They're just so perfectly in sync with one another. They are also huge fans of each other's work. They really are. And, And Sam Esmail grew up watching Twin Peaks. That was the show that informed who he became as a storyteller and sort of really made him want to tell stories in the first place. Mm. And for Mark Frost, Mr. Robert is sort of the TV show of the moment that he really loves and is excited about. Yeah, it's so cool to hear the guys take such deep dives into the origins of each of their shows. I feel like the quote that really defines what this episode is comes partway through from Frost where he says, we have a chance to do something truly against the grain. Let's break down the doors of what you think you can do. Yeah, these guys have not accepted the limitations of TV. They have pushed the boundaries. They have done amazing things. And, and, and I just love listening to them talk about their process. It's really fascinating to hear Mark Frost talk about, you know, the, the, the unique circumstances under which that show was made. Right. And, and, and as he says it, the, quote, draconian level of secrecy around the project. I mean, Nick, you and I work with actors and musicians who are on that show all the time, and we had no hints. And then also the the level of freedom that Showtime gave them to make the show in whichever way they wanted. Which is incredible. Which is incredible. So yeah, whether you know Twin Peaks Inside Out or you're relatively new to the show, whether you're a Mr. Robot nut or whether you've never even seen it. Heaven forfend. Heaven forfend, this is for you. So enjoy. Should we roll it? Let's roll it. Well, Sam, it's really nice to meet you. Nice meeting you. I'm a huge fan. And likewise. And this is really fun. It's great to do this together. Um, I wanted to talk to you about this because Twin Peaks The Return is the best show on TV right now, in my opinion. Um, But I know it had like kind of a weird story coming back to the screen. Love to know what, how that happened. Well, I can can take you back to how it began. Okay. Uh, Obviously, there's a the curtain falls for a good 20 years right before we pick it up again and i approached david in 2012 august of 2012 we had a lunch at musso and franks where we always used to go and have lunch we liked the old hollywood right. feel of the place and i've been good since the 70s it's yeah. yeah it's fantastic so um i i had a way back in i thought that could get us there and um I told him about it, and he had been reluctant to go back for a long time, but there was enough of a thread to, to pull him in to a series of conversations. I think we talked for close to nine months before we felt we had it, and we weren't going to commit to it until we had it. And when you say you had it, were you just talking in generally what the story and What the story was going to be, what the broad outlines were, what where we wanted to start, get to, and, and, and finish. And after about nine months, one day we both sort of said, I think it's time to start writing. Um, this was before we talked to anybody. This was, nobody really knew about it. I mean, our families did, the two of us did. Right. Um, so we wrote the first two hours, or what we're going to serve as the first two hours. Um, 
And we took it to, through an intermediary, to Showtime. Um, our home uh, video aftermarket deal had been through a series of corporate sales and ended up with CBS home video. Um, the parent company is CBS Showtime. Right. So um, it made sense to go there, to keep it all kind of in the same place. And Showtime felt like a good fit. Now, when um, you went to them, did you have an idea of how many episodes it was going to be? Like when you Not precisely, no. I mean, we had the two hours, which right. we gave them to read. Um, they responded enthusiastically. Um, and a negotiation commenced. And we were originally going to do... They wanted eight, we wanted ten. I think we settled on nine hours. We then wrote for about a year. Just the two of you? Just the two of us. This is how you guys did it? Yeah, mostly on Skype. Because I, I had moved to Ojai, and I don't smoke. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and Skype works, you know? Right. It's, it's, it's a really good medium for this sort of thing when you're just face-to-face. Um, so we, we wrote what felt like nine hours. I mean, we even put it into episode form. When you say that, you mean you didn't actually write it the way that traditionally TV, it's like, you know. Well, per, we did the first time through. We said, let's give ourselves, you know, for lack of a better term, let's give us ourselves chapter headings. Right. So we know that chapters ended. Whether that corresponds to an actual uh, hour of TV, right. we didn't really give much thought to. And then by the end of it, um, uh, David felt, let's take those out and make one script. It was 450 pages. And he went over, he hand-delivered it, I think, to David Nevins, the uh, CEO of Showtime, in a three-ring binder the size of a, well... And there were no breaks, no chapter titles, none of this. It was a 450-page film script the size of the Manhattan phone book. And um, they said okay, let's do this. How many hours do you think this is? And then that led to discussions of David's pace is a little bit longer per page right. than the traditional. He said, you know, I don't know. There might be two seasons here for all I know. I won't know until I finish. So negotiations commenced and there were... Um, setbacks and back and forths and uh it was settled right um and it was going to be somewhere between nine and 18 hours (laughs) wow (laughs) so under those circumstances um we began shooting 6th of september 2015 shot for i think i may be missing a couple days of extra stuff 148 days and did you and, and did you just shoot all out of order? Shot like, like a, a film. film, shot out of location. That's kind of what we do on. I've, I on got this that robot. feeling yeah. from from watching the show that um, we went up to the, our original locations in Washington in the Snoqualmie Valley, right? And we spent about six weeks there, I think, shooting out all the original places that we'd used, um, and that was kind of amazing because most of us hadn't been back really since we'd done the pilot in 89, 90. So that had some 
magic to it. Um, and then we came and did the rest in and around LA. Um, we imposed a draconian system of secrecy on the whole proceeding. Um, and was that important to you or David or both? It was both. We felt um, we have a similar feeling about leaks, spoilers, whatever that category of ideas is. It, it loses its value if you tell people what it's going to be. Right. You know, let them experience it for the first time and then let them decide what they think it is. Right. So uh, Showtime saw the complete script. Kyle saw the complete script. And that was it. Everybody else got sides in the cast. Everybody signed NDAs. Um, there were no phones allowed on set. There were, and, and somehow we made it work. Everybody wanted to make it happen. And um, our particular community, our audience, was up for it. They said, yeah, we don't want to know what's going to happen. We want to experience it fresh. So no spoilers from us. And I think there was one person... Um, a civilian who managed to take some very shaky iPhone video from a set from a distance up in Washington. Mm -hmm. That was the only thing that leaked the entire time. Wow. Uh, and this was 15 seconds of, you know, tiny figures from down the street. Yeah, that does not happen when you shoot in New York City. No. You'll, you'll get a lot more leaks. A lot more. <laughs> and, a lot more. And paparazzi. Um, so that was that was how it came to be. And then David, you know, when he was through post, said, yeah, it's 18 hours. And that's what we went with. And did you guys get notes on the script? This is this is where I'm where it gets curious, right? Because the the bold thing about Twin Peaks, especially the the new version, the return, is it's sort of defying narrative it's defiance towards narrative logic there's no there's no there's not even a murder mystery so was there a temptation to do something like that to reboot it to have that one carrot that everyone can kind of follow throughout because i mean what you guys did was just completely embrace the abstract i think the, uh, i think the the short answer is no we followed the thread that we found and we took it all the way and we filled in all the cracks on either side and, and went wherever we wanted to go, narratively speaking, which was really kind of liberating. Um, and it became, I mean, if there's a through line to it, it's Homeric. It's a, it's the Odyssey. It's, it's, yeah. it's a character going home. Right. That's why the return, I think, became the, the subtitle that Showtime felt worked in a couple of ways. Um, it's it's Cooper's journey, largely. Right. Um, and uh, that's what we went with. And, and I think we both felt, number one, we had to raise the bar from the first time around. We couldn't, this was not going to be, you know, a Dallas reunion 25 right. years ago. It was going to be, whatever it was going to be. It was going to be an 18-hour art house movie. Right. Um, and it was going to go wherever it wanted to go. And we were going to, if you're on the highway and you see something interesting, you know, there's a, like the world's largest totem pole is five miles up the road. You're going to take the turn and go up and look at it. Right. That's what we decided. And it had a kind of a road picture feel to it in some ways. Yeah, there it was, did. There were journeys built in. And, and lots of... Uh, like, Tri tributaries. Yes, yeah. exactly. Like like uh, Jerry Horn, you know. Right. Uh, 
Jerry needed a, a through line, so we decided he'll get lost in the woods for right. the entire right. time. <laughs> and he'll end up naked in a bar in Montana, you know, that, that you just find out about in a phone call at the end. But so there were things like that that we felt, let's just throw away the rule book and proceed. It was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And, you know, David, he's adamant about doing things his own way. And he, and he did. He did. What, are you are you doing another season? We don't know yet. You don't know. Yeah. Is it going to be the same thing where if it comes to you, it comes to you. If not, you know. I, I think there would there has to be a compelling reason to do it. You know. So um, you didn't you didn't do this season thinking oh here and then there will be another story after this necessarily no, not necessarily Got but it. that but you know we never say never we did we didn't know the last time either right there was there was clearly more unfinished business the last time right you know we 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 were left mid-narrative right there. Um, so at the very least, we wanted to feel some sense of, of completion. And, and in the meantime, we had this 25-year gap, which becomes its own sort of poignant thematic concern of the passage of time and, and mortality and how people change over time. When you say that was, you know, you, you approached... David and you had that way in. Yeah. It, it was it a thematic thing or was it a was it Cooper's kind of the 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 good Cooper evil Cooper thing? What was that thing? Well, we we had that was there from, from where the, we left it. Yeah, you know the yeah, the, the, the second season. The the split, the doppelganger right. um was set up. So it was kind of a hanging curveball, you know, that was we we had to work with that. Right. And um but then it just that just then became the the conveyance, the 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 motor that allowed us to pull all these and attach all these other cars right. onto the engine. And so it became a sort of portmanteau narrative where we we could fill it with a lot of life from all sorts of different directions. Um, old cast, new cast, new locations. It, it wasn't just going to be a return to a small town in the Pacific Northwest. I mean, you didn't even really return Cooper until the very until the end. Very end. Of, until the very end. Yeah. Which I know frustrated a lot of people, but I loved Kyle's performance. I did too. I thought it was hysterical. Yeah. And, and I thought it was great that you sort of didn't give us what we expected in any way, shape, or form. Was that going through your mind? I think... Yes, but not perversely so. I mean, right. that not not as an object and an end in itself. Right. It was, let's just go where our imaginations take us, and see where we end up. And I know we by the time we'd finished writing, we felt we'd reached a sense of completion about the narrative as it as it evolved. Um, some people may disagree. You know, they they may feel. Uh, but that's that you know that you can't control that. That's is is there an answer to Twin Peaks? Would you say like you know we're now we're you know, I, I deal with this on my show. Sure, sure. The redditors and the yeah. conspiracy theorists and people following the clues. Um, is there an answer to the show? Are they are they trying to hunt for something that is there? The the show is not a treasure hunt. The show is um, experiential. I mean, your the destination is the journey. The fun of it is going on the ride and and seeing where it takes you. 
emotionally, mentally, psychically. Is that what drove you when you were writing it, when you guys were creating it? I think so, yeah. You weren't, were you thinking of, well, no, this has to add up to this in a logical, you know, plot sense, or were you just sort of ignoring that? No, there was a fair amount of that. It had to, it had to have an internal logic that held up to scrutiny and it had to at least make sense to us if to nobody else. So yeah, that was a, that was probably the hardest spade work that we did was, uh, and I can remember it at times being stuck on things for almost weeks where we had to sort out exactly what was going on. And that, you know, you've got to, you know, that's the, that's the, that's spine. the spine. Yeah. That's, that's it. That's yeah. the whole thing. Right. If you don't have that, you don't really have much. But, it, it, but is it meant for it to be clear to the audience? Is it meant like if the audience didn't get it or, do, or did you, do you feel like you failed in that respect or is it meant to be open? I think it's meant to be left to the audience's interpretation. I mean, for me, as an, as an audience member, the things that always moved me the most, we were going to talk about it, you know, earlier influences. And I, I was going to go back to the summer of 1968. I was 14 working as a, uh, a young intern at the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis where I was going to, about to start high school. And two things happened that I think propelled me into this way of life, this uh, telling stories. The Prisoner had its first run on American television in the summer of 1968 on CBS. Remember that? Well, you've seen it subsequently. Yeah, yeah. And 2001 came out. Oh, wow. And those two things uh, imploded my my mind because everything I thought I knew about narrative and storytelling up to that point was blown to smithereens. I, I came home from watching 2001 and I wrote, I think it was a 15-page letter to Kubrick because I wanted answers. I wanted to know. Right. I, I had to know. I'd, um, he never responded. I did mail it. Um, <laughs> and similarly with The Prisoner, it, uh, I, uh, the, that last episode of The Prisoner is, um, it's an acid trip. You know, it, it takes you places that no, nothing that had ever aired on American television, as far as I'm aware, had ever even approximated. Um, both of them literally blew the top of my head off and changed my perceptions about what storytelling could be. And uh, I I think my course was kind of set by those two events. So um, I'm sure you would agree with this, knowing your work, that the audience gets to have their own opinion. We can't control it. Right. It's it's up to them how they respond. But I also just, I mean, 2001 was also very defining for me in terms of storytelling. But what's interesting is how not having all the answers is actually more liberating as an audience member, you know, from any, from TV shows, movies, it's the, it's the abstraction that actually engages me on a much deeper level than imagine watching something and everything is spelled out for you and you know exactly what everyone is doing, what their motivations are, and cl- and everything is as clear as crystal. That is not an that's, experience that's I enjoy. That's it's, like buying furniture. That's yeah. product, you know yeah. what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. It's like 
It's uh, murder it, she wrote. Exactly. You know? it's, yeah. it's flat. And it's probably, it's the most popular form of it, I guess. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. But mm-hmm. um, it seems to be incredibly successful, especially in TV, you know, because those that procedural thing. Sure. I know exactly what I'm going to get every week with some variations, but even the variations are very spelled out and very clear. I've struggled, I've, you know, I've struggled. What is it about? No, it's about not knowing. It's about, it's about being confused, intentionally so, that feels more thrilling. From the first season, this is why I appreciate the second season of Mr. Robot a lot more than the first, but I think why it was at the same time very polarizing is that in the second season, I felt that me and the writers and 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 the crew and the DP and the production designer and costume designer, we just took a lot of liberties yeah. and freed ourselves from, uh, you know, being strict to narrative logic and clarity, yeah. and decided to really lean into expression and character and um, and abstraction and there was just something more electric and just in the making of it. And even when I watch it back, uh, that, um, that, that the first season didn't have because I felt things were a little more spelled out. And that's what was thrilling about it. I mean, the first season was fantastically well done. And I'd, I had read somewhere that you had mapped out the, all three of the first three seasons right. going in for your very first. The, well, or that well it, I, had, I had mapped out basically the entire thing because it was yeah. initially going to be a movie. Right. But for me, and I and I, I watched the first season with rapt attention. It really grabbed me. It was the best thing I'd seen in a long, long time. Oh wow! Thank you. And then the second season, it was like the booster rocket kicked in, and it took you into another level for exactly the reason you're talking about. Um, particularly the um, the episode that invoked the the old sitcom. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I just I that was thrilling at a whole other different level, and I said, okay. Sam knows what he's doing, and I, I'm I'm going to stay in for this whole ride. Well, and I remember that day that we were shooting because we shot that the sitcom parts in two days because it's really you can shoot that really fast. There's not a lot of lighting. Yeah. There's three camera setups, so you're getting all the coverage all in one in one setup. Right. But that was the day we had gotten nominated for best drama for Emmys, uh-huh. and, and, and I remember being on that set, and it's this ridiculous gas station set or whatever it yeah. was. And I remember thinking, this this gets nominated for best drama for him. And I remember thinking, you know, there's a mix mixture of concern. Uh, am I doing the right? Are we doing the right thing here? But ex- excitement because it's it's pretty wild. It's pretty out there, and it's pretty crazy. And does it all add up? Does it all make sense? In an internal, like in an internal way, in an emotional way, it did, and it yeah. didn't have to make sense in any other way. It doesn't, as long as it's subjectively true to to what you're feeling right. when you write it and what you're trying to convey. And it doesn't have to be a concrete thought. Right. It can it can be that a feeling or a, a sense of mystery. Right. Look, I had broken in on the Six Million Dollar Man. There's no more. Is that is that your first? That was gig? my very first gig, and then. And then I, you know, I got I was there for four years of Hill Street Blues, which in its day was groundbreaking and yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, on to, and it was on top of its game. And but but I, I I clearly felt like I was riding along on the evolution of the medium. So when it, we had this chance to to kind of explore Twin Peaks, the the appeal to us was we want a nighttime soap with a twist. And I said, okay, well, this sounds like we can do something really subversive here. We can actually subvert the conventions of the genre 
not make it melodrama, but actually base it on a real heartrending tragedy with real grief and real stakes and, and real emotions. Right. Um, it's about an incestuous relationship and, it, and, it, and it's heartbreaking when you really get down to brass tacks. And when people saw it, they didn't know what to make of it because the emotions, David direct, beautifully directed the pilot. They, they were very real. There was real grief and there was, there, and at the whole first half hour of the show is just seeing the impact of oh, this yeah. death on, on this small community. Um, and, you know, and it's the quirky and all the other accoutrement that help you go on the ride. But um, once we landed it, I said, okay, well, we have a chance to do something truly um, against the grain. Let's break down the doors of what you think you can do. So did you go to David with the idea? Or we, did ABC come to you? No, guys? we knew each other already. We'd met and written a couple of scripts together three years before. One that I wrote that he was going to direct about Marilyn Monroe based on a, a biography of hers. What happened to that? Uh, the book, it was based on a book called Goddess by Anthony Summers. It was a brilliant British journalist, political journalist. And it was the first book to really rip the cover off the relationship with the Kennedys and the mob and uh, and raise the very real possibility that she may have, have been murdered or at least accidentally killed as opposed to a suicide. Right. Um, and United Artists had bought the rights to the book. Uh, a a uh, producer uh, hired me to write it and... David was on board to develop it and eventually direct it. That's how we met. Wrote the script, turned it into United Artists. We discovered within 48 hours that Ethel Kennedy was on the board of directors at United Artists. And they turned it around wow. over a weekend for pretty obvious reasons right. if you were to read the book or the script. Right. Um, so that put a... A priest. That, well, that sucks. That, that sounds amazing. That would have, I think it would have been a pretty movie. interesting project. And Jessica Lang was set to play the part. I mean, oh my peak god, Je peak Jessica Lang. You know, she was oh born to play that part. That so would have been, it would wow. have been something. So that didn't happen. We then wrote another script, a comedy, a very bizarre comedy called One Saliva Bubble. Uh, for David had a deal with Dino De Laurentiis, and. Uh, it was a, an antic comedy with, with, interestingly, two actors playing double roles. And we had Steve Martin and Martin Short. And we were something like six or seven weeks away from production. And Dino went bankrupt. And David got the script back and turned around, but the movie went away. So we'd had those two experiences. Right. And we got a call. We were both at the same agency. And an agent called and said, ABC's interested to know if you'd like to come in and talk to them about an idea for a show. So, so they had the idea. They, they had, they, they, the precedent that they cited to us or the antecedent was, we want to do a Peyton Place, hmm. um, which had been an ABC show in the 60s. We said, yeah, well, that's interesting in its own way, but we're not going to do that. But the small town, the secrets in a small town is an interesting area. We'll go with that. So that was how it, it, it first came about. So when it fully hit, the idea was, let's just, we've got the ball and we, let's just run with it. Let's just go places people haven't gone before. Did you go through the process of writing a pilot, making the pilot, 
testing the pilot and then getting the pickup after that. Laboriously, yeah. <laughs> um, Did you know when you wrote the pilot the who the killer was, the ending, and all that, or did that not matter? Did you? It say? didn't matter to us. Yeah, we had a North we had an inkling, but we we didn't know quite yet. So you Trojan horse this thing. You kind of yeah. You, you used the nighttime soap model, but you really it was an excuse to do. To, all. It was to it was an anarchic. Let's throw a bomb into network nighttime television and see what happens. And it was ABC. They were in third place. They had. They had nothing to lose. Yeah, you know they were going to take a roll of the dice here. Um, I, I feel like we. I, I felt like I feel like with Mr. Robot, it was we were kind of in a similar position. I mean, USA always has done well, but I think they really wanted to reinvigorate their the drama slate, and I think they just rolled the dice on us. Well, and that's why I, I remember watching the first few episodes, and every time at the end, going, "This is on USA." <laughs> What, this is really interesting because that's. But I, I feel like when Twin Peaks came out, well, ABC, everybody was saying yeah. this is on ABC. Yeah. and finally, <laughs> that's the thing. It doesn't mat much matter what the what the delivery system is, as long as you get it out there. Right. And and what excited me about Mr. Robot for a lot of things did, but so few shows contemplate the world as it is, and and deal with the hidden underlying realities of big systems like capitalism and society and what is what is the price we all pay for living in a system like this. I think the other thing, aside from trying to be entertaining and, and, and taking you on this ride, uh, this experience, there is something about wanting to also use that, I don't know what, what you call it, the real estate, whatever, to to say something about what we're going through as a society or as a, as a, as a group of people, as a community. And I, ha I have to talk to you about this episode, the episode eight, which is mm -hmm. of The Return. Yeah. Um, because it hit me like a ton of bricks and, and it's not even really set present day, mm -hmm. right? It's mostly- Mostly in the past. In the yeah. past, but it's about today in this really resonant way did you know when you made that episode what you guys did, did you guys know what you were doing did you guys know it was going to have this reaction uh because i think i think it's sure i think it's pretty well known now that this is it was a groundbreaking hour of television well the idea um came out of the uh, uh, the feeling that the the larger uh issues of what was going on in this world that we had created needed something like an origin story. It, it needed not explanation, but a, a, a illumination. We had to go back to the scene of the crime, the original scene of the crime that had perhaps engendered all that followed. And um, I remember I originally wanted to call um, the show Twin Peaks semicolon and it's, I'm going to forget the phrase in Spanish, but there's a section near Alamogordo uh, that they call uh, Dead Man's Passage. That's a section of, of desert where people just simply, if they entered in there, they weren't going to make it. Hmm. That to me was um, pretty central to what we were going to do. And it's, there are a lot of original sins if you look at American history, but the most modern and the most uh, devastating is obviously 
the atomic bomb and the fact that we developed it, we were the, uh, knock wood, we're still the only country that's ever dropped one on, right. on other human beings. And it felt like that might've been an entry point for something. And, you know, and we had, we'd been playing all along with this mythological notion of other dimensions and other realms and uh, uh, our version of, you know, a realm of the gods or the demigods or uh, a play of good and evil on another plane, that this felt like the organizing incident. Hmm. And um, so it was very carefully scripted. Um, the, the description of the entry into the cloud, you know, was probably two paragraphs. And I, I think David, I remember David saying something like, I think this part's going to be about half an hour. <laughs> um, so, um, and then it, uh, we both wanted it to have the feel of a 1950s radioactive horror movie of them or the War of the Colossal Beast or all those, uh, Godzilla even. I mean, there's a whole genre that I grew up with on, on black and white television and the million dollar movie in Los Angeles of nuclear uh, weapons unleashed, devastating the natural world and creating all these mutations. So uh, I th we both resonated pretty strongly to that as an idea. So that's where this sort of came from. And um, I mean, directorially, he, he killed it. Got a, got a light. Yeah. Where, yeah. where did that come from? It was, it was a line we wrote that w we felt that there were these sort of shade-like half-human creatures that might have picked up some vernacular somewhere. Right. Maybe by watching a film noir, you know, or right. that they, um, and that this would be their way to approach. I mean, it, it becomes sort of a zombie movie at one level. And then the, the poem that David actually wrote that himself, I think on the set, that the, the, the guy, we originally in the script, I think, had him speaking a kind of mechanical language. The one, the, on the radio. On the this radio. is the water and this is the well. Right. And uh, it, it really hits, you know, and the guy delivered it beautifully. So that's where all that kind of took off from. Do you, okay, so in this realm of mysteries with ambiguity and no answers and uh, or some answers but not all the answers or how do you what so how did you guys what was the compass like uh, you know what was the litmus test did you get did you give out scripts oh yeah I guess you didn't give out any scripts so you yeah. never you never you never looked for notes or on the cuts or anything like that it was yeah. just you and David and it was David on the cuts I mean he uh, he said I, I want to I want to have final cut on this I said go you know go for it man you know? And he didn't show, so you, n there was no like, let me see if people are getting the things that I want them to get? No, he, I mean, he trusts his instincts. And right. um, and I'd say I trust his instincts. Um, but where, so what about in the writing process? Were there ever moments where it's like, whoa, we've gone way too far out yeah, there? Yeah, and th there were, that's where you have, uh, I think, the friction of collaboration to help right. sand off those edges where... where you do have to reality test it with each other. Um, it has to make sense. It had to make sense to the two of us. Right. Um, and that's that internal logic you were talking yeah. about. And it's, and I think if you've been doing it this long, as long as I, 
I have, it's over 40 years. You have to trust your instincts. Right. I mean, you're going to, what, some network executive's going to tell you different. Exactly. And, um, a studio guy's going to say, but it really means this. It's like, well, then I should probably just write books from now on because I, 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 I think I trust my own more than I trust yours. You may have a better commercial instinct. I, I, I wouldn't doubt that for a second. And is that ever a consideration? Is that it wasn't here. No. And, and you know, you're, you're one of the fortunate ones who I think has been able to break through without that being a huge concern. I mean, I don't know what kind of input you're getting from, from the network, but... No, um, I mean, look, we get input, and for good reason I, I invite it, because I want to know what people are extrapolating. Yeah. What, what, is being, what is being told to them, what isn't, and it's good to just know that. Yeah. Um, whether, that whether that influences how I change anything is, you know, gratefully up to me as, because the network really supports me and, 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 and that's a lucky position to be in. Yeah. Uh, but I do sometimes want to check in, mm -hmm. you know, it's weird mm -hmm. because uh, I know what I want to be a mystery and then yeah. I know what I want to be clear and, yeah. and there, are, and it's a delicate balance, you know? Yeah. It's that difference. It's the difference between a mystery and a secret. Right. You know, a, 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 or what, in a more kind of pragmatic way, what Hitchcock used to call the difference between secrets and suspense. Um, do you like TV now? Do you like where TV has gone now? Yeah, well, I think um, the short answer is yes, because I think there's shows like yours and um, there are things, uh, I'm finding there's at least one show at any particular time that I want to watch. That didn't used to be the case when it was right. three networks or four networks. Um, you were lucky if you found one thing a year. At least I felt that way. Do you do you have a favorite show you're watching now? Well, I'm I'm still watching the end of of uh, Ken Burns Vietnam right now. Oh, I haven't haven't seen it yet. It's remarkable. Um, the other landmark event for me in TV in the '80s was the Civil War. Oh yeah. Um, which I, I I'm a yeah history buff. Huge history buff, and um, I'm from an old. American family that goes back a long way. I had people on both sides of that that war. And um, I'm old enough to have heard stories from grandparents who remembered stories from their grandparents. So it wasn't as, uh, the, the closeness of, uh, of that event to us was remarkable. I even once went and toured all the Civil War battlefields. Wow. Alone, about 15 years ago. I just- How were you, Did you ever consider doing- uh... I had an idea that I've, been working on off and on about writing something about that. But Specifically the Civil War. About that, yeah. Um, and um, I had a great uncle who was FDR's secretary for 10 years, his personal secretary. And huh. So I knew him as a kid and he told me stories. He said, and he, was, he died in 1965 in his mid 80s. And he said he could remember his mother telling him stories about having seen Ethan Allen and the Green Mountain Boys in Vermont. Wow. Now that's the Revolutionary War. Right. So I'm going, you know, it's it's like time traveling. Right. And that's what kind of makes history come alive. So uh, that being, now that I know that that's a particular interest of yours, is, was that part of the inspiration for Twin Peaks at all? Was that, is there anything about that? Because there, there does seem to, there, there's a sense of, 
especially all the things that you were just describing, specific yeah. American history. Yes. There's a there's an Americana feel, obviously, to Twin Peaks that, that seems intentional, and obviously I know from David And it's Lynch. intrinsic, yeah. Right. And, it's, um, and there's, there's more of it in The Return, and there's a lot of it in the book. Right. Which uh, I wanted to do as a kind of companion piece to the the whole series, not just the new one or the old one. And, and to fold, uh, to create a, you know, work with American mythology and not, most of the mythology that we get handed is very often secondhand British or right. other cultures. Right. I mean, you have your own culture that I think you bring things that we don't normally see. Right. I you mean, know. I grew up very much tech obsessed. Yeah. I mean, you know, the dawn of the PC and, you know, and, and, and I was, you know, exposed to very interesting subcultures of hackers and techies yeah. in that kind of nation area where they were starting to just come to, come to rise. And, and then I would also get disgruntled with how Hollywood was representing that yeah. world because um, it was, you know, completely inaccurate, didn't didn't really touch upon what was interesting about that subculture. And even though that was one of the drivers, ultimately, I think Elliot, his character and his worldview was my primary motivation, but exploring that world, setting it in that world was just something that I was just a fan of. Yeah. For whatever reason, I was gravitated towards that. And I, I knew I wanted to at least in, include the texture of that into the show. And it became the show, it, but yeah. Well, and then it's also now become maybe the basis for a purloined election and right. an international espionage. I mean, yeah. in ways that's, you know, impl uh, exploded far beyond Right. What we ever knew was possible. It's, it's, it's interesting. I've always wanted to tell this story for a long time. And for whatever reason, I think it was, it was again, a couple of other forces in my life that finally had me put pen to paper when I did to write the, to, to write the, uh, initially the movie, which turned into the pilot. And we just sort of came out around the time that hacking was in the public conversation, you know? Yeah. I think if it did come out five or 10 years prior, I don't know if it would have worked. Yeah. Because I think it was too elusive. It right. Would, people would not have, it wouldn't have, wouldn't have felt credible that somebody on a keyboard would feel that powerful, yeah. would yeah. be that powerful. And now, of course, now we think our election is dictated by yeah. it, you know? No, I mean, that's the lightning in, in the bottle factor that you cannot, cannot anticipate. No. That just means something just, you just got hit. You know, do you when Twin Peaks first season came out? That was lightning. In That's what it felt like. Yeah. What was it about that time, that year? That that for whatever reason, those stars aligned for you guys. Well, what was strange about it was we had, and this I, I alluded to this earlier that we had done the pilot, and then they sat on it forever because they. From a conventional storytelling standpoint, they couldn't make heads or tails out of it. There were fans of it at the network, but they thought... Did, it, did they test it? They tested it, and it tested very well, but they didn't trust it because they just said, this doesn't look like anything that's been, right. been born on our farm. You know, It's like a three-headed cow. <laughs> right. we, we, don't, we don't know what this is. Um, so they said, well, well, let's do this. Let's have you do seven more hours. They really hedged their bets. So we wrote the scripts and they said, okay, well now, why don't you go make those? And so this was all done in a vacuum. Nobody had seen hmm. a frame of it other than the network. So we had nine finished, but with the two hours of the pilot and the seven before it ever was seen. 
Wow. And then that that's got to be very unconventional, especially at that time. At that time, and it, that, that's we, we're two years into the process at that point, from start to finish, right. and actually more because when we pitched the show originally, there was then a writer strike in '88 that delayed it another eight months, so it was really attenuated. Um, then the nine episodes air, and um, <laughs> it's like um, we're the Beatles all of a sudden. We didn't know what to make of it. You know, it was it was nuts. It was truly nuts. The The internet was just coming to life. Right. Somebody came in one day halfway through the run with this huge stack of readouts, printouts from, uh, I guess, a very primitive form of an internet chat forum. Right, BBSs or something. Yeah, and plopped it on my desk and said, and I had no idea what that was. <laughs> I mean, I had like an AOL account. You right, know? It's right. like I knew how to do email, but... Um, I didn't know that people were using it to do this. By the time we got to the second season, there was this white-hot glare of the media all over us. Right. And that's the, the conditions under which we made the second, the second year were, and we had the pressure from the network to settle the mystery and, you know, for whatever reason, they just, they had to know. But coming back all these years later and doing what we did, I felt like that kind of, completed the circle in a way that had been left hanging. Um, a lot of people wanted to be persuaded that this wasn't just what they call fan service or um, a cash grab or, you know, a nostalgia trip. It was, it was going to be something in and of itself that um, was either going to stand or I, fall. I, I think it's groundbreaking once again. You guys came back and and just changed the game for us all over again. And I don't know, I don't know if it's, Hit, it hit me over the summer. I don't know if it's hit everyone um, in that. In, in that, because look, the show is it takes processing power. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And you patience. And, and patience. Yeah. And um, but I think it's changed the game. I think it's changed the game. That's cool. Well, it'll it'll be out on DVD, you know, soon enough, and people can scrutinize it maybe a little bit more and, yeah. and live with it. And, and that that you know that's sometimes what you have to do. Right. Um, so we'll we'll see where it goes. Now, when are when do you come back on the air? We came back two weeks ago. Are you kidding? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I'm behind. Uh, yeah, I'll have. I've to been on the road for uh, about ten days. So, um, um, yeah, no, catch up. Well, I'll catch up with. Yeah, it, get I'm, a, get. A, I'll send you the. I'll send you a couple of episodes. All right. All right. I'll have. I'll I'll actually get you ahead. How about that? That'd be very exciting. I mean, it's yeah. a small thank you for doing what you did and influencing a geeky 12-year-old who... <laughs> Happy to do it. Well, you know, like I said, it um, doesn't matter where inspiration comes from, but everybody needs that, that spark, you know? I know you're a Kubrick fan. I'm a and, huge Kubrick fan. And, but it feels like it's like pay it forward almost, right? Yeah, that's what it's like. That's what it's I like. probably saw Twin Peaks before I saw my yeah. first Kubrick movie. If, if, if that did for you what The Prisoner did for me, yeah. or, or 2001. 100%. Then, yeah. yeah, then that's pretty cool. Is that a good note to end it on? It might be. What do you think? It might be. Well, right. thanks, awesome. Man. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, this was, was really great. Fun. A good note for us to end on, Nick, is to send everyone to talkhouse.com for some fantastic pieces about Twin Peaks. We have Christabel, David Lynch's muse, writing about all things Twin Peaks and David Lynch related. I love that one. 
and Bria Grant and Matthew Wilder also sharing their unique takes on the show. Listeners, if you enjoyed today's episode, head over to iTunes and Stitcher and subscribe. While you're there, rate and review. Every time you do, it helps someone else find the podcast. Also go find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or YouTube, where we have full video episodes of the podcast recorded live at the Sono Store here in New York. Well worth checking out. Thank you today to Gideon Brower for recording this conversation in LA. And to Mark Yoshizumi for co-producing. I'm Nick Dawson. I'm Ellie Einhorn. We'll see you next week. Till then. 